On Monday of this week, uh, one of our members, Caesar Othone and I, met at the Goodyear Recreation Park to play some pickleball together. Now, I think you could accurately describe Caesar and me as pickleball newbies. Uh, we were asking those around us the rules and all of that. Uh, and uh, we were just playing one-on-one, but as we played, uh, a crowd began to gather, not to watch us, but to play themselves. And uh, we knew that we were going to have to either give up the court or join and play a game of doubles. And that's what we ended up doing. Now, our, our opponents were, was a, uh, a middle-aged woman, uh, about 55 years old or so, and, and a young gal, I don't know if it's her daughter or not. And uh, they, she told me that this, this younger woman, too, was also learning the game. And so, friends, going into this game, I felt very confident uh, that, that Caesar and I uh, would indeed obtain the victory. Um, but the next few moments and minutes uh, was, were only something that I can describe as humiliating. Um, call me a sexist, I don't know, but never in my wildest dreams did I imagine getting skunked uh, by this duo of women, uh, 11 to nothing in the first game, I think. At about the 8 nothing mark, uh, they, of course, had the serve of the service, and uh, they asked us, so they, they said, well, you guys serve now. And I was like, no way. We are not taking your charity. I am way too proud and way too uh, competitive to receive your, your grace and your mercy. We're going to play. Now, maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, I still thought we can win uh, down Eight to nothing. Uh, but friends, that was nothing more than wishful thinking. It was grounded in no evidence from the, from the game thus far. Uh, it was simply the fact that, hey, I think we can come back. You might say that, that I had faith that we could win. But that wasn't really faith, was it? That shows us how confused we are about the nature of what faith really is. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just the power of positive thinking. In fact, when the Bible defines faith, it's not this type of blind irrationality like I had that thought you could just come back against all odds. No, faith is not soft. It's not weak and flimsy. Biblical faith is a firm reliance based on the credibility of the one we believe. It's evidence-fueled, historically grounded trust in Jesus to save. Friends, open your Bibles, please, this morning to Romans 4. Romans 4, it's on page 941 of the Bible underneath your seats. If you made it to church this morning without a Bible, grab that one and use it. And if you don't own a Bible, friends, let us give you that Bible. Take it home, make it your Bible, read from it. We would love that. If you're new with us, again, friends, I want to welcome you again to Redeeming Grace Church. And uh, I want you to, to let you know that what we're about to do over the next few minutes is the same thing we do each and every week here at RGC. Uh, we open the Bible, which we understand to be God's very word to us. We explain its meaning, and then we apply it to our lives. Uh, right now, our church is going through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, which he wrote from Corinth in, in ancient Greece in about 8057. Uh, to believers in the the imperial capital of the Roman Empire, the great city of Rome. Uh, As it happens in God's providence, uh, the the text of Scripture that we're landing on today in our series on Easter Sunday is an explicitly resurrection-themed text. I mean, how cool is that, right? Apparently, the Spirit even uses advanced planning. Uh, We're glad that He does that. 
Friends, I understand that it, it might be tough just to kind of jump in midstream to an ongoing sermon series, so let me just take a few moments to catch you up to speed. Throughout this first section of Romans, Paul has essentially made one massively important point from chapter 1 on, and that point is how sinners can be made right with God. Lest you're tempted to think, phew, this doesn't apply to me. Uh, this, this applies to those really bad people out there, you know, the, the, the murderers and the rapists and such. Paul says, no, no, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. No one is righteous, not even one. And what Paul keeps coming back to again and again and again in Romans until he's blue in the face is that you can't make yourself righteous through your works. It's like a total non-starter. Your best intentions aren't what make you good with God. It's not your good deeds or your, your religious activity or your moral compass that guides your life. None of that stacks up to righteousness in God's sight because of the indelible stain of our sin and rebellion against God upon our souls. Instead, Paul says that a right standing before God, our salvation is by faith in Christ alone, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And because God grants us righteousness through the work of Christ alone, that means you can't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't, you don't have a leg up on others because of, let's say, your religious background or your family pedigree or your Bible knowledge or your keeping of the sacraments. None of that matters. You must humbly receive God's righteousness as a gift of God's grace with the open hands of faith and reliance on Christ's work, not yours. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul deals with an objection that the Jews would have hurled back at him, namely that this gospel of grace that Paul had been proclaiming, that can't be right because God had declared the Jews' great forefather in the faith, Abraham, to be righteous because of his obedience, because of his works. So Paul gets out his theological bazooka And he just obliterates that argument. He shows from the record of Genesis itself, the Old Testament scripture that the Jews believed how off they were. God credited Abraham with his own righteousness because Abraham believed God's promise to him, not because he did anything. Abraham and David and all the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that you and I are rescued by God's grace through faith, through trust and reliance on him. Salvation is by faith alone. Friends, that's how you're made right with God and follow in the footsteps of Father Abraham and become part of his spiritual family and so benefit from all the amazing promises that God made to Abraham. You receive those promises by faith alone. So if that's the case, if that's the case, if sharing Abraham's faith is essential to salvation, then we'd better understand what type of faith Abraham had. You agree with that? Okay. If you and I need a faith like Abraham for God to count us righteous and not guilty before him, then we'd, be, we'd better be dead certain what type of faith that is. Friends, the scripture could not be clearer. The type of faith we need is a firm trust in the one who gives life to the dead. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Look down at the text. Paul has just said that God does not grant anyone his righteousness by keeping the law because none of us can do that perfectly. If obtaining God's righteousness could somehow be merited through our law keeping, 
Well, it would just hollow out God's promise of salvation that he gave to Abraham way before he gave his law to Moses. Okay, here's verse 16. We'll pick it up midstream. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritor of the law, the Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each and every week here at Redeeming Grace Church, I try to give our congregation a main idea of the text of Scripture that we're preaching from that I hope will be the main idea of the sermon today. Here's the main idea of Romans 4, 17 to 25. Saving faith, the type of faith by which God saves us, the type of faith that Abraham had, saving faith, rests on God's death-defying ability to keep his word. Saving faith rests on God's death-defying ability to keep his word. Two points this morning, one illustrated in the life of Abraham, one applied to us. Number one, the promise maker raises the dead. See that in verses 17 to 22. The promise maker raises the dead. And then Paul applies it in verses 23 to 25 because the promise keeper raised Jesus from the dead. Unless you're confused, the promise maker and the promise keeper are the same. It's our God. He raises the dead and indeed raised our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I, I, friends, I pray that, that our God through his word this morning might give us a firm and abiding trust in his power and in his promises. After all, he is the resurrecting God. Number one, the promise maker raises the dead. I know I started in a bit of an awkward place this morning, the text, uh, but the reason we did this is because right in the middle of verse 17, Paul makes a shift in what he's emphasizing. Did you see that? No longer is it so much on the promise of God as it is, as it is the character of the God who makes the promise. Alongside that, Paul pivots from talking about the fatherhood of Abraham to talking about the kind of faith that, that made Abraham a suitable father for all those who believe. Paul's very clear. This is not generic faith. It's not wishful thinking. It's not the, not the power of positive thinking. It's not faith in faith itself, as the mantra goes, whatever that means. No, Paul says the profile of faith I'm talking about is one that rests and relies fully on God's power and his reliability to keep his word. 
Paul doesn't merely want us to see that Abraham had faith. I mean, that's good, but that's not what he wants us to see. He presses deeper to show how radically God-centered Abraham's faith was. More specifically, how God-centered Abraham's faith, faith was in the face of what seemed humanly impossible. Who is this God that Abraham believed? Look at verse 17. He's the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, God is the one, friends, who can overcome death. And he's the one who has the power to overcome nothingness. <laughs> They're not a problem to him. Now, why did, why did Paul draw our attention to this aspect of God's power? Well, he explains in verses 18 and following by recounting the story of Abraham. I'm going to kind of fill in the gaps for you in case you're not familiar with it. Essentially, it's this. In Genesis 12, God made a promise to Abraham that it was going to be through one of Abraham's future descendants that he would bless all the nations of the world. And, and said in the context of Genesis, we know this blessing that God promised to the world meant the undoing of the curse of sin. God is promising to roll back all the effects of sin and death and suffering in this world to bring salvation through the descendant of Abraham. However, there was just one small problem actually one massive problem. As Abraham and his wife Sarah grew old together, they were childless. Sarah was barren. And so one night, in order to strengthen Abraham's faith, the Lord escorted him outside and invited Abraham to count all the stars of the sky. If you, if you look at the end of verse 18, Paul quotes the Lord's word to Abraham in that very moment, recorded in, in uh, Genesis 15, 5. Just like the stars of the sky are innumerable, the Lord said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, you're going to be the father of an uncountable host from all the nations. And despite his circumstances telling him a different story, Abraham took God at his word. He believed and he trusted in God's power and reliability to keep the promises that he had made. As we looked at last week, Genesis 15, 6 says that in that very moment of believing, God counted or credited to Abraham his righteousness, God's righteousness that Abraham received by faith. And yet, friends, the, the years kept rolling by in Abraham and Sarah's life until finally, when Abraham was 99 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, the Lord miraculously and powerfully made good on his word through the birth of a son to Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, get ahead of myself. Through Isaac, that would be weird. Through Isaac, the promise of God continued on. You say, John, you've really still not explained why Paul writes that Abraham believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, but our text tells us explicitly. Did you see it? Verse 19 says that Abraham considered his body, what? As good as dead. He was so old, and especially when it comes to the ability to father a child, that he might as well have been dead. And then at the end of verse 19, text says that Abraham also considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That word barrenness, friends, literally in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written is the word deadness. He considered his body as good as dead. He considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. It was lifeless. It had no fertility. She was way past her childbearing years. I mean, even in her, in her prime, Sarah was infertile. 
And yet out of this double death, God gave Abraham and Sarah a new life. He powerfully gave life where there was only death. Isaac's conception was like a resurrection. And according to verse 17, when God gave Abraham Isaac, he called into existence the things that do not exist. Does that sound familiar? Just like he did when he created the universe through his powerful word out of nothing. Abraham had no children. God's promise hung in the balance. And so just like at creation, God called into existence the promised son from nothing. Friends, the birth of Isaac is pictured here as a resurrection and a new creation. So what is, what is saving faith according to Paul? Well, it's faith in the one who has the power to give life to the dead. It's taking God at his word despite what seem like impossible human obstacles. That's, that's what verse 18 means when it says that in hope, Abraham believed against hope. Abraham's hope was against all humanly plausible reason to hope. Friends, when Abraham and Sarah asked for the maternity unit at the local hospital, the hospital receptionist would have directed them to the geriatric unit or maybe to the psychiatric unit. I mean, this is crazy. This is impossible. With man, yes, but not with God. He gives life with his mere word. He resurrects the dead and he creates out of nothing. This is just who he is. Friends, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to understand that, that biblical faith, when we talk about faith as Christians, it's not unreasonable or irrational. It's not like the Christian version of some superstition. It's not burying your head in the sand or kind of blindly whistling in the dark to keep your spirits up. That's how many people think of faith. They deride faith as kind of the polar opposite of reason. Bertrand Russell called faith a conviction with, which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. It's silly. It's irrational. It's unreasonable. But friends, the Bible presents faith as entirely reasonable. Because as John Stott insightfully points out, faith's reasonableness depends on the reliability of the person being trusted. It's always reasonable to, to trust the trustworthy and to rely on the powerful. Abraham's faith was rational and reasonable because God's character is proven and credible. Abraham didn't turn a blind eye to reality, friends. No, the text says in verse 19 that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham did not shut his eyes to reality and just have faith. No, he stared it straight in the face. He looked at reality. He looked at himself and said, yep, I'm really old, right? He looked at Sarah and said, yep, she is really barren. Abraham's eyes were not closed to human realities. They were open to God's realities. His faith made sense because of what he knew to be true about God. Friends, how much more true is it, is it for us at this point of history than it was for Abraham? Abraham looked forward for the realization of God's promises. And although God started to fulfill them in the birth of Isaac, they were not fulfilled in Abraham's day. 
But for those of us who live after the coming of Jesus, after his death and his mighty resurrection from the grave, we know with even more certainty how reasonable faith in God is. We don't stake our lives on a fairy tale. The story of Jesus isn't the figment of our religious imagination. No, our faith is grounded in the evidence of a real person and a real event that happened in real history. Jesus walked out of his tomb. Nothing else matters. Friends, I don't have time this morning to lay out an apologetic for the, the resurrection of Jesus. I've, I've tried to do a little bit of that inside the front color cover of your worship guide this morning. But if you're here and not a Christian, I, I would challenge you, don't presume that Jesus' resurrection can't be true just because you've never seen something like that happen. This world is not a closed box sealed from outside forces. No, this is God's world. And he can intervene in it anytime he wants and suspend and override the natural laws that he has made that govern this world. He is the creator and he is the great redeemer. He is the resurrector. Countless people throughout history have set out to study the claims of the scripture to try to disprove them. And in the process, have been utterly convinced of their reliability. So don't wall yourself off from God because you think faith is unreasonable. The reality of a creator and judge and redeemer is the most reasonable thing you could ever believe. And I actually think your conscience bears witness deep down within you that what I'm saying, what the Bible says is real and true. If you're here today at the invitation of another Christian, why don't you spend time talking together, reading together one of the gospels about the life and ministry of Jesus with that Christian who invited you this morning. Take an honest look at the gospel's credibility and see if the Lord might open your heart and mind to truth and faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, verses 20 to 22 are some of the most encouraging verses in all the scripture. I'm serious. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. <laughs> you might be thinking, dude, how is this encouraging? Like, this seems utterly discouraging to me. I know my own heart, right? I know how my heart vacillates. I know how one day I'm strong in faith, then the next day I'm, I'm weak. If I'm supposed to have an unwavering faith like Abraham, well then, John, I am sunk. Like, this is super discouraging. But beloved, wait a second. Wait a second. Do you remember the story of Abraham? Should I remind you of the times that Abraham tried to take things into his own hands? Should I remind you that even after God justified him through faith, Abraham slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, to try to manipulate the, the fulfillment of God's promise to him? Abraham's faith was far from perfect. If we were to take just kind of a single snapshot of Abraham's life in that moment of, of, of sleeping with Hagar, we would look at it and say, his faith wavered. But brothers and sisters, praise God, it is not a snapshot of one moment of your life or snapshots of a few moments of your life that matters. It's the film reel of your life that matters. It's that, it's that that God considers. Despite Abraham's many severe failures, Paul could write with truthfulness, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Abraham tripped and fell. 
And then he got back up, repented, and kept running the race of faith. He repented of his sin and restored his trust in the promises of God. Who needs that encouragement this morning? Who needs to be reminded that isolated moments of unbelief, those moments do not compose the ultimate word over your life? I know I need that word. Friends, what matters is whether or not the totality of your life is marked by reliance upon God's word. It's the film reel, not the snapshot. Notice, too, the perseverance of faith in Christ. Well, notice that's how we glorify God with our lives. Did you see that connection in verse 20? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Faith in God and the reliability of God's word, that honors him. It magnifies his character. It highlights his, his power and his dependability and his goodness and all the attributes of God that enable him to keep his promises. This morning, do you want to glorify God with your life? You want to honor him, Christian? Take God at his word. Saturate your mind and your heart with the promises of God and stake your life upon them, even when things look humanly impossible. Beloved, faith always, always looks at the problems in light of the promises. We look at life with a different lens. We look at problems through the lens of God's promises. Is that your instinct? Or is there an area of your life where you've lost sight of God's faithfulness and power? Lord, I, I trust you in general, but, but this thing, this, this thing seems so beyond your reach. It's, it's too far gone. It's hopeless. It's in a different category. It's too hard. Maybe it's an unbelieving friend or family member with whom you've shared the gospel countless times. It'd just, take, it'd just take a miracle for the Lord to save him or her. As if it didn't take a miracle for God to save you. Like, really, friends, our God is the God of resurrection. He's the God of new creation. It literally is nothing for him to penetrate the darkest heart with the light of his truth. So don't give up. Don't throw in that gospel towel. God saves whom he wills. His arm is not short that it cannot save. Just because they seem out of your reach doesn't mean they're out of God's. Perhaps the situation that fills your heart and mind this morning is a, is a terminal illness, a, a broken marriage, a wayward child, financial difficulties. It's a burden that each day feels like it's about to crush you. You don't know how God could possibly remove this specific thing or meet this specific need. Friends, Abraham's God is your God. He's promised to supply every need of yours according to his riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised his grace is sufficient in weakness. He's promised to bring you safely home to glory if you're in Christ. Your situation is no match for the infallibility of God's purpose and his promise. He will make good on his word. Friends, just because God seems silent does not mean he's absent. Abraham's life teaches us that. God's silence does not mean his absence. Jesus' death and burial teach us that. On Holy Saturday, 
Between that first Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Jesus' body was in the tomb. He had descended to the realm of the dead. All seemed hopeless. But friends, the silence of our God was merely the unheard prelude to the mighty roar of his power when he raised Christ up. Friends, think about our church. Did we not just see God evidence his power and trustworthiness over the last seven months in relation to our building predicament? I mean, my goodness, for a while there, things looked bleak. The future was foggy at best. But what did we seek God's grace to do? We just banked on God's character and his track record of faithfulness. And once again, our God came through. I mean, what a faith strengthener this has been for me and I trust for you as a church. Our God answered our prayers specifically and powerfully. Anchoring your life to the God of the promise doesn't mean that he's obligated to answer you in the way that you want. We don't hold to a name it and claim it faith theology, right? Faith doesn't guarantee any result except the glorifying and honoring of God's name. That's the result it guarantees. It's the type of faith that God counts as righteousness, and that's what ultimately matters. So number one, the promise maker raises the dead. Number two, the promise keeper raised Jesus from the dead. In verses 23 to 25, Paul applies to us as as Christians what he's just illustrated in Abraham. After writing that Abraham's firm, fully convinced faith was the reason God credited righteousness to his account, Paul writes in verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our uh, dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, for those of you who weren't with us last week, remember that this word counted that Paul uses a couple of times here, it's super important to his argument in Romans. It's a, it's a commercial word, a financial word that basically means credited, counted, reckoned. We're, we're morally bankrupt. In fact, it's not just that we have nothing in our spiritual account, it's that we have this debt of our unrighteousness that is piled up for which we deserved God's just judgment. We have no inherent righteousness on our own, but through faith in Christ, God credits. He counts our account with his own righteousness. Friends, what, what Paul has showed us about Abraham's faith isn't it's some, not some interesting historical tidbit, right, from the Bible with no relevance to our lives. No, Genesis 15, 6, the fact that God counted Abraham to be righteous through faith in his promise, what applies directly to us as believers in Jesus. Here's how. Here's how. Think with me theologically here, because that's what Paul is doing. First of all, God fulfilled his promises to Abraham, how? Through Jesus. Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham through which God would bless the world. And the specific way that God brought salvation to the world is through Jesus' death and resurrection, which Paul highlights there in verse 25. So do you see the, the correlation that Paul is making? How was Abraham justified? How was he declared righteous instead of guilty? In sin, it was by trusting the resurrecting God who made the promises. How are we declared righteous instead of guilty in sin? By trusting in the resurrecting God who kept his promises in our Lord Jesus Christ. And second, just as Abraham believed in the resurrecting God, 
So do we as Christians. We entrust our lives to the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. I think that's the link that Paul is driving at. In each case, God fulfills his word through resurrection. Isaac was just the foreshadowing. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, the embodiment of God's power to raise the dead to life. Friends, before Jesus, Old Testament saints like Abraham, they trusted in God's promise to bring his salvation yet to come. But now that Jesus has come, all your faith and all your trust and all your hope, it must be placed on Jesus or it's not faith at all. You understand that? There's no other option. Specifically, as Paul says in verse 25, you must believe that Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And it's such a beautiful and concise summary of the work of Christ. Many scholars think it's the language of an early Christian creed that Paul employs here. It does have that feel, right? Delivered for our transgressions, raised for our justification. It's one of the most important statements in the New Testament about how God saves us from sin. Did you notice that each of the verbs here in verse 25 is in the passive tense? Did you notice that? Jesus was delivered for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. They're parallel to each other, which shows us that the subject, the one performing the action, it's the same. It's God. It's God who handed Christ over for our trespasses, and it's God who raised him powerfully for our justification. Now, friends, this first phrase, let me just explain this to you. This first phrase, delivered for our transgressions, it's an echo of Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. It was the Lord who ultimately delivered Jesus over to death. It was God who judged our sins in him. It just points out the fact, again, that God is the one who took initiative to rescue us when we couldn't save ourselves. Our God did not hand Christ over to the death of the cross because he was a sinner, but because Christ was our sin bearer. In what can only be described as incomparable love and grace, Jesus took our place in the judgment. We sang of it on Friday at our Good Friday service. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. For all of those who trust in Christ to save, there is no more wrath of God left because Jesus took it all. You might ask, John, are you kind of singling out or is Paul kind of singling out a a specific type of person or a specific group of people here? Like, what are you saying? Now, friends, the message of the scripture is consistent that all of us deserve God's judgment because all of us have rejected the loving rule of our creator. The religious and the irreligious, right? The self-righteous and the hedonistic. The goody two-shoes and the party animal. Every single one of us has given our hearts fundamental allegiance to other things, not God, who alone deserves our worship. Things as seemingly innocuous as sports and hobbies and family and comfort. Things as deadly as addictions and enslavement to our passions. We've all rejected an infinitely holy God and an infinitely good God. And therefore, God could not remain good and just to just kind of wink at our sin and and sweep it under the rug of eternity. No, our sin had to be judged. 
If God did not judge sin, he wouldn't be God. So this, the great solution to the problem of our sin and the judgment that we deserve is the death of Christ in our place. On the cross, God satisfied the demands of his justice through the death of his son for all who would turn from their sin and believe. Jesus paid the entire debt in our account that we owed God. It's all of his grace and none of our work. That's why we must receive it through faith. But notice for Paul, the cross and the resurrection, they're a package deal. You see that? You can't have one without the other. God saves through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not some sweet Disney tie-in at the end of the story. No, not at all. It is essential to your salvation. If the stone had not been rolled away, if the tomb had remained a place of sorrow, if the stench of death wafted from Jesus' rotting corpse, there would be no salvation. Why? Because Paul says God raised Jesus for our justification. Now, I don't know about you. When I, when I first noticed this verse several years ago, it really surprised me and frankly kind of confused me because when we talk about justification, which again is God's legal declaration of righteousness over a person's life, what do we normally think about when we talk about justification? What event? The cross. That's right. It's through Jesus' death that our sins are forgiven and that we are made righteous. And that is right. So what does Paul mean that Jesus was also raised for our justification? Well, friends, I think the most simple way to put it is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead authenticates and confirms that our justification was secured by Jesus on the cross. It's not like somehow Jesus' sin-bearing death on the cross lacked effectiveness. It's not like he satisfied like nearly all the wrath of God, but then the, the resurrection kind of pushed it over the edge. That is not what's going on. When Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. He meant it. He was right. In that moment, sin's eternal price was paid through his blood. Death lost its grip on all those on whom Christ's blood is applied. Satan's reign of death was finished. No, the resurrection did not achieve our deliverance from sin and death so much as it brought us assurance of both. When the breath of life filled Jesus' lungs on resurrection morning, God was publicly, loudly confirming that he had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Redemption's work was done. You might think of it this way. On the cross, Jesus paid the bill. In the resurrection, God showed the receipt. On the cross, Jesus paid all the debt of sin. In the resurrection, God sent the invoice. On Friday, Jesus was falsely accused and falsely convicted and unjustly executed. On Sunday, he was vindicated. On Friday, Jesus was humiliated. On Sunday, he was honored. On Friday, Jesus was declared guilty. On Sunday, God declared him to be what he really is, and that is completely innocent. Death could not hold him because death is the penalty for sin of which Jesus had none. Justification, you see, is about sharing Jesus' status by faith, by union with him. Left to yourself, you know what your status is, friend? Left to ourself, left to myself? 
Our status is terrifying. It's one of a sinner rightly condemned for our traitor, our traitorous sin nature and our actions against God. Your and my legal status before God, the judge, is guilty. We deserve his wrath in eternal hell. But friends, if you'll come to Jesus this morning, if you'll turn from your sin and rely on his promise to rescue you from the penalty of your sin through him, you know what God the judge will do? In his mercy, he'll grant you the status of the one he judged in your place. Like, that is amazing. The banner over your life will be the same banner that's over Jesus's life when God raised him from the dead. Innocent, justified, righteous, not because of anything you've done, but all because of what Christ has done. And then on the last day, he will raise you from the grave because he raised Christ from the grave and you are united to him. Again, it's not 90% Jesus and then you bring the final 10% through your good works or through the keeping of the sacraments to get you across this finish line. No, it's Christ from start to finish. It's coming to Jesus with completely empty hands so that you might grip tenaciously onto him to take you into the loving arms of God. You don't have to pray a special prayer. You don't have to recite some religious mantra. You just let your heart pivot to say, I believe. I am gripping Jesus by faith. Friends, when you do this, when you trust God's promise to save you through Jesus' death and resurrection, you know what God's going to do? He's actually going to begin a work of transforming your life from the inside out. He'll not only give you a new status, righteous, he will give you a new life that over time will progressively begin to match your new status. What he's declared true of you. In Christ, your righteous status will yield a righteous life through the presence of his spirit and the power of his spirit within you. God will resurrect your life and make you a new person. He'll restore you to what he created you to be. And when you see Jesus someday, when God raises you from the dead, he will complete fully what he began. Friends, one day we'll see our God and King face to face. And in endless joy, in light and peace, we will forever praise the one who kept his promises by raising the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we praise your name that you are the reliable God, you're the promise keeping God. You're the dependable one because in your great power, you can overcome any obstacle to the keeping of your promises, even when it means raising the dead to life. Well, we praise you this morning, most of all, that you raised up Christ Jesus from the tomb, that we can trust in you and believe that indeed you will forgive us of our sins through faith in Jesus, because Jesus conquered the grave. He conquered our sin. He rendered our enemy helpless. He forgave it at the cross. Oh, Father, may we rely entirely on Jesus to save. Once again, we pray for those who may not be of faith this morning. For those who are not Christians, we thank you that they're here. We ask, Lord, that the word might even continue to resonate in their heart and life this week, that they would have good friends, good Christian friends in their life. Help explain the gospel more fully to them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.